This is American Resistance, a mini-series highlighting the people and stories from David Rothkoff's latest book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation. For our final episode of the American Resistance miniseries, we're excited to bring you a conversation between Ed Luce of the Financial Times and the author David Rothkoff, held at Politics and Prose. We hope you enjoy their conversation. Thank you for that um, wonderful introduction, and also just great to be back here again. Um, and um, particularly great to be here with David, my friend David Rothkoff, but also colleague of sorts. Um, I uh, most weeks appear on Deep State Radio, um, the the conspiracy in plain view. Um, which, if you're not a podcast listener, this is how you should you know break you break your um, um, teeth on it. Um, so, David, let's get straight to your book. Um, this is a wonderful book. I mean, this is a, a really good book. And the thing that first struck me when reading it, um, all the way through, really, was that the question kept occurring in my head: Did this really just happen? Because I'd become so acclimatized, like like most people, and benumbed and unshockable, that I had forgotten that Trump not just wanted to build a wall, but wanted to build a moat all along the wall, and the moat would have crocodiles and snakes in it. And this wasn't some of Al- alligators. Alligators, sorry, crocodiles, alligators. <laughs> this is we're going to be divided by a common language throughout this. Uh, uh, or that he was at some D-Day celebration in Europe where he refuses to go to a World War II cemetery because it was full of losers. Um, or that he wanted to strike refugee caravans coming up from Central America with missiles uh, and hurricanes with nuclear weapons and so on. That did, did this really just happen? Well, I guess my first question to you is, I mean, you have brought out very vividly the sense of shock that I thought I'd lost just by rereading this and the detail that you provide. What was it in researching and writing this book that most startled you? That's a really good question. Um, Because I, of course, do remember these things happened, and I'm a little worried you don't. Um, (laughs) It's coming up. Um, It's PTSD. But, you know, the book... You're nice to say the nice things, and and so so are you. But but to the extent I wrote it, I actually compiled it. I spoke to a hundred people, former senior U.S. government officials, and I tried to let them, people who had been in the Trump administration, people who had been in the cabinet or in the sub cabinet or in agencies across the government, tell their story, and. Um, you know, that's the best part of doing any book. You talk to people and they share their their insights. What was striking to me was where they were fairly unanimous. Almost all of them had served in prior administrations of the people I'd spoken to. And almost all of them within the first several weeks of this administration or sooner during the transition or the campaign said, this is not like any government I've ever been in. Almost all of them realized in that same time frame that Trump could be dangerous, irrational, that 
He didn't listen to advisors in the sense of government officials, although he might well listen to the last guy he talked to on the golf course. And so that that was striking. And there were other areas where there was this kind of unanimity. For example, almost all of them stayed longer than they wanted to because they were afraid of what would happen next. They thought the prospect of Trump not being challenged by people who put the rule of law first was was dangerous and that he was working towards that goal. They thought the prospect of Trump gaining re-election would lead to a worse circumstance. And let me say one thing briefly here, if I can, I, I can add, that follows on the introduction as well. The reason I use the term deep state is because it's very important we sort of ask ourselves the question, why have they made up this conspiracy theory? And the reason they've made up this conspiracy theory is very much akin to the reason they refer to fake news. They want to discredit people or institutions that could impede them on their way to their goals. And this so-called deep state are actually public servants who take an oath to the Constitution, who place the rule of law in the Constitution ahead of loyalty to party or person. And so therefore, they represented a big threat to Trump and to those around him, and they wanted to discredit them. And they, these people were very successful in impeding some of their worst ideas, not all of them, but some of them. And, and so by the end of the administration, they decided they were going to try to find a way to fire them or replace them wherever they could without Senate confirmation. And then they floated this idea of Schedule F. And, you know, you're Washingtonians and insiders and so forth. So you may know what Schedule F is. Most Americans don't. And it's sort of under the radar. But the idea was, let's be able to fire these public servants, because then we can replace them with loyalists. And that is a step towards authoritarianism. It's a step towards gutting one of the last effective guardrails that we had to preserve our system. And I have to say, all these people clearly understood and articulated that risk. Cabinet members, subcabinets, and so forth. And that was striking to me. The book is about people who did the right thing. I mean, good people who did the right thing, sometimes not so good people, but who at the right moment some for some reason did the right thing. I think Mike Pence. Bill Barr. Bill Barr. Bill Barr. And we can get into those um, later, but I just want to stick on the, the good people, the uh, Masha Jovanovic's, um, the Vindman brothers, Fiona Hill, George Kent, Mark Zaid, the whistleblower, people like that. Oh, Dan Coates, and director of national intelligence. If you'd looked at their resumes before the Trump administration and then everyone else's, would you have predicted that those would have been the ones who stood up for loyalty to the Constitution rather than the man? Um, because, you know, these are clearly key people. Is there a pattern to what, to what kind of people they are? Can we, can we learn something from these names? There are patterns among those people. Some of them were immigrants or children of immigrants, and they had a special appreciation for the country, for patriotism. But let me say something This is going to be very shocking for you to hear from me, but let me say something fatuous. 
that sounds Pollyannish. I first came to Washington, and this is going to be hard for you to believe, when I was like right out of college. I worked as a press secretary to a congressman called Stephen Solar in 1979. My first meeting was with the subject of your next book, with Spignu Brzezinski. And I then came back during the Clinton administration. I've spent the last 30 years deeply involved in Washington ever since. And I have a view of people in Washington and people in government that's contrary to what I call Reagan's big lie, not Trump's big lie, but it was the big lie that led to the big lie. And Reagan's big lie was government is the enemy. And that's an incredibly dangerous lie because it leads you to people discounting the conclusions of government about an election. It leads you to people not wanting to go into public service. It leads you to thinking, oh, well, government doesn't matter. I could have a brain-damaged former football player as a United States senator. Who cares, right? That's dangerous, and it, and it led us here. But here's the thing. In my time in Washington, 95% of the people I've met in the U.S. government, Republicans, Democrats, and independent, were public servants who are here to do the right thing, who are good people. And you know because they're your neighbors, because they live here in Washington and you encounter them. And some of them may be annoying in some respects, and some of their bureaucracies may be slow and, and unresponsive and, you know, and so forth. But they all could have made more money doing something else. They didn't go to Wall Street. They didn't, you know, most of them, they decided to stay here and to slog it out as a public servant. And so, you know, I'm not so surprised that they would do the right thing because the vast majority of public servants I know take an oath and uphold the oath. Some do it well, some don't do it as well. You know, I mean, I'm not foolish about it, but they take this stuff very seriously. And, and if, I, if I may, you know, may conclude that point, you know, in the book, I, one of the people who captures this extremely well is Congressman Jamie Raskin, who I think is a national treasure. I just, that's my own personal view. But Congressman Jamie Raskin talks about what these people did in upholding the law, respecting the Constitution, and so forth. He calls it constitutional patriotism. And that sounds a little jingoistic, but it's right. And these people, for the most part, are constitutional patriots. And so I'm less surprised. So let, let me um, just delve down a little bit more into that. I I'm, I'm, I'm definitely take your word for it. And it. It's backed up by my experience that most people working in positions in Washington are motivated by public service. And there's a clear ethic there. But not all of them are required to show the courage, which is sort of a, a, a virtue above and beyond what you've just described, that you saw from a number of these characters. That is a, a rarer virtue. There's sort of it's a deeper sense of integrity. You said that a lot of them were immigrants or children of immigrants. That's a very interesting point. Could you expand a bit on that? Well, just, you know, you've heard Alexander Vindman's story or Evgeny Vindman's story or Fiona Hill's story. And so many of those, my dad was an immigrant. He came to escape the Nazis, came to this country. You know, four years after he got to this country, he was in the United States Army. And he went back to Europe, and he fought in World War II, and he spent many of the years of his career working with 
the U.S. government because he thought it was an incredible privilege. And I was like grown up in suburban New Jersey and I was like, cool. And he would put out the flag on Memorial Day. And I was like, what this is jingo? What are you jingoism? What are, what are you doing? He loved it. A lot of people who come from overseas, except possibly from England. Um, no, 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 no. <laughs> Fiona Hill is a name you yeah, just mentioned. Fiona Hill. But she's from Northern England. Um, <laughs> um, you know, they, they really, they, they value these things. It, it's not one size fits all. You do get Bill Barr, you know, who does terrible things for years, or Mike Pence, who does terrible things for years. And then finally, there's a bridge too far. You know, finally, there's one, I'm not going to do that. And one of the things I wanted to say is we ought to be grateful that at least once they did the right thing. We ought to be able to see that with our eyes open, recognizing that for three years, they did the wrong thing and contributed to the problem. I I think we need to be able to look at it in an adult way. But there were a number like Bashi Ivanovich and, 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 and the Vinmans and Bill Taylor, the ambassador who was involved in that particular case, or, or people like Tony Fauci, who said, you know, I'm going to take my chances and do the right thing. And many of them got fired. Many of them got death threats. Many of them to this day, Olivia Troy, you know, Olivia Troy is one of the people who sort of inspired me to do this book. Olivia Troy joined the government. You, many of you may not know who she is, but she joined the government after 9-11, said, I want to serve my country. The first place she's assigned to go is Baghdad. She's working in the green zone in Baghdad. Then she's like works in the national security community. And then she works in this administration. She works at DHS and then goes over to join the vice president's staff and gets onto the COVID task force. At a certain point, she had seen enough. She had said, I, you know, I have to blow the whistle on this stuff. And to this day, she, like Tony Fauci, like Alex Vindman, they get death threats. They have extra security. We live in a country that has so lost its mind on issues of politics, and yet they were willing to do it. And that's heroism. I'm thinking we are two doors down from Comet Pizza. <laughs> yes, where we will all go later and eat babies. Um, it's not just Trump alone. There are enablers, and this is the sort of opposite of the characters in your book. There are people who get Trump up to the brink. They take America back from the brink. They avert calamity at the last minute. They bend the law. They do what's it called, presidential remediation or remedial presidenting, I think is the term, to try and sort of avert him or give him options that distract him. But there are people who urge him on up to the drink, up to, to the brink, the super enablers. Stephen Miller springs to mind. I guess in some respects, Jared Kushner springs to mind. And in many respects, some of the people who play good roles at certain points, at really critical points like Bill Barr, refusing to cooperate with the Stop the Steal um, narrative, uh, or Mike Pompeo, ditto. They're also super enablers up to a certain point. And, and after. And, and afterwards, of course. And, and Bill Barr will still vote for Trump in so, spite so, of everything. But so so Mike Pence, that. you never know. 
So how important are those super enablers? Um, and I want to get into uh, Schedule F later and the possibility, as you put it, that this is not that we've dodged a bullet, but that we've temporarily avoided a boomerang. Well, I think it's super important that we recognize. And one of the, I mean, you know, I didn't write the book so that you could have flashbacks. You know, I mean, although I'm glad it had that effect, but, but it's super important that we recognize this story is not only not over, but the greatest danger lies ahead of us. And the issue is not one individual. Donald Trump has no ideology. Donald Trump is a deeply flawed leader. Donald Trump is not the root cause of American racism or misogyny or anti-LGBTQ behavior or authoritarianism or Christo-fascism or any of the things that are there. There are millions of people out there who have those views. And if you look at the Republican field right now, with the possible exception of Liz Cheney, if you look at the Republican field of potential 2024 candidates, many of them are worse on these points. Many, you, know, my, you know, I mean, Ron DeSantis has had, had his own little private police force and fired somebody for expressing the idea that maybe someday he might take a position different from Ron DeSantis's and quashed the distribution of COVID data and, you know, had the don't say gay bill and all, all this, you know, and, and, you know, he's, he's the star, right? You know, the press, I pick up the press, not the FT, but I pick up elsewhere in the press and they're like, well, Trump's over and the new rising star, you know, the big, you know, turn of the page is Ron DeSantis. It's not a turn of the page. And some of these people continue onward you know, Stephen Bannon hasn't gone to jail yet, and he's continuing to work to support the election deniers. I, I don't know if you followed the story on uh, Friday, but as Speaker Pelosi stood up at the conclusion of what anybody would have to acknowledge was an extraordinary career, the next speaker, the likely next speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, thought it beneath him to attend. He was too busy. What was he doing? He was meeting with Stephen Miller at that moment, sending that message that these people are the virus of Trumpism, and they are spreading through our body politic. And you know, one of the reasons that I wrote the book was so that we could see how that works, what it looks like what has been effective in quelling it in the past, and what they learned from it, so that perhaps going into the future, they'll be more successful at gutting the things that we value in our system. I mean, let's just pick up on that. Take an example. You go into some detail, very interesting episode of uh, Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense, and Mark Milley, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, having to do that perp walk across Lafayette Square and then realizing and pulling back that this was a, a ghastly political photo op and then did a lot of work in between then, which was June and November, trying to prevent what they saw coming, which is what happened. What would have happened if Mike Flynn had been Secretary of Defense or Chris Miller, the guy who became the acting SecDef 
after Esper was fired. You talk about how close we got. Would we have would we have gone over if the military had been the Pentagon had been run by somebody who had agreed to seize ballot boxes as Trump demanded? Yeah. I mean, th- we came incredibly close to that. I mean, Flynn was in the Oval Office at the end of December, passing this view on. And there were a lot of people around Trump saying, don't meet with him. He's dangerous. His close you know, advisors, his general counsel and other, you know, keep him out. And Trump was like, no, I'm going to sit. And they stayed there all late, late into the night trying to talk that through. And Chris Miller and the Defense Department, I don't think we fully get what happened on January 6th in terms of where the government should have been responsive and it wasn't. And, uh, you know, that is DOD to some extent, the National Guard to some extent. There is a scandal, a big scandal within the Secret Service that we're just scratching the surface of. I mean, you know, clearly Pence was afraid to get in a car in the Capitol because he didn't know which Secret Service agents were driving the car and if they'd take him to some undisclosed location and silence him. Right. And clearly there were some Secret Service agents who were like, no, Mr. President, I'm not taking you to the Capitol. And there were other ones who were like, you know, let's do this. And there were some who were saying, oh, yeah, this crowd is armed. Let's look the other way. I can see a guy in a tree with a gun. Let's look the other way. And the president says, let them in without going through the metal detectors. And they're like, oh, okay. You know, and so there are many people within the government who enabled him. And I, and I think that's another point. You know, I mean, I taught, subtitled the book as how the deep state saved the nation. It really should have been how the deep state tried to save the nation, how the deep state periodically saved the nation. But the battle's not over by any stretch of the imagination, and they weren't successful in every case. I'm glad you mentioned Pence, because I was going to get to him. There's a great description, I can't remember who you're quoting, of Pence being an HOV lane inflatable dummy up until this point, um, which is better than a mannequin. Or the actually airline pilot was the one I had in my head. It's just a perfect... A movie airplane. Yeah, he just looks like an airline pilot. But he stepped up, and uh, as you remind us in this book, you know, the person who was probably key in terms of getting him to do the right thing on January the 6th with the certification was Dan Quayle. How it did occur to me that, you know, if the future of the Republic depends on good advice from Dan Quayle, then it's, it's hanging by a thread. But somehow... But, 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 but let me interrupt you there. That was a different Republican Party. You know, those, th- those were a different day. Dan Quayle may not have been a rocket scientist, and although he did go off and get incredibly wealthy after leaving the government. So he, he knew how to do something that I never figured out how to do. But that was a different crowd. There was an element of public service in what they were were doing. Now, by the way, I don't think they were out of the woods entirely either. We Trumpism didn't sort of emerge. It's been coming for the past 60 years. And every leader in that party contributed to it to, in some way. Uh, no, I mean, it, point taken about him it being a different Republican Party and Dan Quayle not being a, a rocket scientist. So I, I can't resist quoting his, it's time for humans to enter the solar system, being one of my favorite Quailisms. So this intra-Hoosier advice worked in this case, and Pence obviously trusts people from Indiana a lot. 
that 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 did make a difference. What if, and here I'm inviting you to be speculative, what if the vice president had been Ron DeSantis or somebody else? Take your pick. Why, why did Pence, really something we wouldn't necessarily forecast, do the right, suddenly find his spine at this moment? Well, first of all, let's remind ourselves that he almost didn't. Like, you know, he, he was like at the very last minute calling people up going, I don't know, what should I do here? You know, should I blow up democracy or not? You know, if that was a tough one for him, you know, we, we you know, we, I, I just think, you know, we, we, we don't want to give him too much credit for this. But, you know, he comes from a tradition of rule followers. I mean, he is from the evangelical wing of the Republican Party. And he was troubled by some of the, the, the notions at the core of that. And that's to his credit. Now, he also manages to take those same teachings and say, I believe everybody in the United States should follow my rules, the rules of, of the sect I believe in, which is, I think, antithetical to the principles of which the country was founded, but rules mattered to him. And so I think at the end of the day, he was searching in his own way for the moral thing to do. Now, let's go back. He was Donald Trump's vice president. He did know what kind of man Donald Trump was. He did see what the administration was doing and supported it on a Muslim ban, you know, an immigration ban that was designed to keep people of color out of the country and so forth. So he's, he, he was definitely not a, a saint in, the, in, in most of his tenure. So in, in about five, ten minutes, um, we'll take questions. And when we do the mic, you have to stand behind that mic. But let me ask two or three more questions. Um, and one is just a current event, which is Merrick Garland's appointment of a special counsel, Jack Smith, producing a potential Mr. Smith goes to Washington situation, a person of the type that you feature in your book. Could could this be that moment? Can Can I ask you to think through what Jack Smith might mean for Trump's future. I don't know. He seems like the right kind of guy. He seems like he's got the right kind of background. He seems moral. All the reasons that Merrick Garland gave for appointing him, he knew in January of 2021. So, you know, waiting till now is a bit of a mystery. You know, he said he did it because Trump is running again, but Trump's been running all along and he said he was running all and Biden is running again and he wants to keep this, you know, above the stench of politics. But of course, the opponents of this immediately disregarded that and politicized it and discounted what he was doing. And no matter what he does, the opponents and Trump, of course, are going to say this was, you know, political persecution. Um, so I'm not sure there was much value to that. The, the, the area where I think there was some value in him making this choice was because he's bending over backwards to restore the credibility of the Department of Justice. And he may be hyper-cautious, too slow. There are a lot of things that we can criticize him for, but the Department of Justice needed that. Doing a little bit too much to appear to have integrity, 
is better than doing too little, right? And having said that, unless Donald Trump is held accountable for his crimes, this discussion is is moot, right? And so he may be the right guy, but you know, if we're sitting there in 2025, you know, continuing to have this discussion, and that could be the case. In fact, one of the reasons people said, oh, it was having a special counsel may be a good idea is because it could go on after the Biden administration, then we've got a, a problem so deep that the integrity of these men is of little consequence. Okay, I mentioned earlier your boomerang dodging a bullet quote that this might actually just be a temporary avoidance. And you talked about Trump being prematurely written off. Clearly, the midterm elections have given people the fact that the most Trumpian of candidates mostly got defeated and that Trump's 2024 launch from Mar-a-Lago was a damp squib has given people maybe this full sense of confidence that we're past peak Trump, but let's say that we're not and Trump comes back to office. Now, he's presumably, he's not going to read this book, he doesn't read books, but he's going to be aware that certain types of people thwarted his desire to put out of Nate, whatever it might have been, to build a wall. What is it that a second Trump administration would, would look like? Who would he appoint to the key positions? And how would we be able to stop it then, since he'd be starting not from zero, as he did last time, but from a much, much higher number because of everything he knows? First of all, I don't think Donald Trump is going to be the next president of the United States. I don't even think he's going to be the Republican candidate. I think he's over. I don't think Trumpism is over. I don't think the MAGA GOP movement is over. I think that as I said earlier, most of the candidates who are leaders within the party will carry those ideas forward. And you've heard some of the ideas, including one that I think you were getting at, this Schedule F idea of being able to let you know so many people in the government go, that is now being adopted by the party at large. You know, Newt Gingrich, that defender of democracy, has said he thinks that's a good idea. And people like DeSantis and others have said, you know, or implied that they would do that. And so, you know, basically, Trump didn't know how to be president, and some of the people around Trump didn't know how to be president, and they've gotten in and they've seen what impedes them, and they are trying to dismantle it. And now, Richard Nixon was brought down by not just the DOJ, but the media, and Roger Ailes said, we need our own media to offset the liberal media. And so an enterprise began in the 70s that became Fox News in the 90s and became, you know, right-wing echo chamber in the 2000s. And so that was an effort to break down some of the resistance that they have seen. Ronald Reagan saying government is the enemy is an effort to break down some of that. The Gingrich revolution in the 90s in the Congress did the same thing. You know, the uh, Federalist Society saw that courts were going to be a problem, but if, you know, you handled things in a certain kind of way, you could tilt the court in a direction. And we now have the prospect of a Supreme Court 
that is not only no longer a guardrail against irresponsible activity, it will be an engine of acceleration of irresponsible activity for the next 10 or 20 years. And that's more likely than not, right? Uh, so, and the Federalist Society began doing this work a long time ago, just as they began doing the work of taking state legislatures in a systematic way so that gerrymandering could take place. So, again, this is a 60 year enterprise, and it has happened incrementally along the way. And, you know, among the things that the Trump chapter learned was that federal government officials were a guardrail and they will want to get in and put in acting department heads so they don't have to have Senate confirmation. They want to put in their own inspector generals so you don't have whistleblowing activities. They want to embed their own deep state, which I refer to in the book as the dark state, which they have. There are people still there, and I want to be specific, but like, you know, the Inspector General and the Department of Homeland Security, for example. But, you know, there are people who are still there in the system who've been implanted to make it easier for this transition to take place. So it's not just Trump. It is a long-term systematic enterprise. So Trumpism 2.0, but without Trump, whether it's DeSantis um, or Nikki Haley um, or whoever it might be, Mike Pompeo, Kirstina, um, no, I mean, there are plenty of people auditioning. Does it differ only in style from Trump or does it differ in, um, in substance in any way? Because I know a lot of people perhaps reassuring themselves that, well, after Trump, the worst has gone. But maybe you could look at it the other way around, which is that, well, minus the capriciousness, minus the unpredictability, minus the incompetence, you actually get something worse. Well, I think you do. Look at Florida and Texas. But, I mean, you know, those are the Petri dishes for this. Peach tree, peach tree dishes, I think, <laughs> is Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene's. <laughs> Yeah, the peach tree dishes. But um they you know, they're you know, look look and see what you you know see in those places. The not just efforts to slow abortion or to stop it, but to charge doctors, cab drivers, people who enable it, draconian as reminiscent of the worst that you've seen in repressive regimes, you know, efforts to ban books, including math books that have word problems that are politically incorrect. You know, the effort to attack wokeness, which after all means tolerance, right? Goodness in your heart, right? No, that's bad. We can't, can't have too much of that. But if you look, I mean, you know, you talk about the people who won. In the mid Paxton won in Texas, who's, you know, among other things, a criminal, but a really bad guy. And, and you know, a lot of election deniers won at the state level and so forth. So it could be worse because the views have grown more extreme 
than than I I thought was humanly possible. I mean, you know, congressmen posing with anti-tank weapons on their Christmas cards. I mean, think think about how warped that is. And 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 yet that's the rank and file, right? That's that's where that party is going. Yeah, I promised on Twitter to rush outside and hug strangers if Lauren Boebert lost. But I haven't hugged anybody. I think to tip the election in her favor. Maybe. <laughs> Thank you for this uh, very interesting book and discussion. Does the Hatch Act provide any guardrails for the Schedule F dilemma? And the second question is, who is Ron DeSantis? He he went to an Ivy League law school. Did he have to take constitutional law? I mean, Trump didn't know what the Constitution was. Aren't they different people? The Hatch Act should help, but it's never enforced. So it won't. You know, I mean, it should, but we don't enforce the Hatch Act. So, I mean, Kellyanne Conway, you know, there are a bunch of examples you can think of recently where that wasn't enforced. Secondly, yeah, Ron DeSantis went to an Ivy League school. Ted Cruz went to an Ivy League school. Josh Hawley went to an Ivy League school. Mike Pompeo went to an Ivy League school. I went to an Ivy League school. Um, uh, it does not, it does, you know, it's just people, you know, and some of them are jerks. And in fact, you know, I've taught it in an Ivy League school, and I have to say, many of them are jerks. And, uh, you know, you get, it, you get all kinds. I, I do think he's different. I, that's why I think he's more dangerous. He's smarter. He knows the law. He knows how to make things a little bit more acceptable. I think he's a little less dangerous because, and this is, you know, hard for me to say, but there is some perverse snake oil salesman charm to Donald Trump, right? I mean, he was on TV. Ron DeSantis has the charm of a Gila monster. You know, I mean, he's like, he's none. So, you know, and, and Dave, I don't know if you saw his debate with Charlie Crist. And Charlie Chris says, are you going to run, you know, for president? And DeSantis just seethed. You know, he just, <laughs> he was like visibly seething and he just couldn't handle it. So, you know, they all have their strengths and their weaknesses, but I'm particularly concerned about the strengths they will use against our weaknesses. So I think we can all agree that party polarization is getting really bad in this country. And I think we'll see that probably around the Thanksgiving table, too. And each party is kind of just trying to stop the other party. That's kind of like democracy today. Do you think there's going to be a time where we can get more bipartisan support just to try to like greater the country? I hope so. And for those of you who are facing this, these divides over your Thanksgiving tables, I feel for you. Not my Thanksgiving table, by the way. <laughs> um, but but um, I don't think bipartisanship of the traditional kind is on the near horizon. But it is possible in small ways. And I think we've been very fortunate to have a very old school president who comes from that tradition. And if the bipartisan infrastructure bill was, the, you know, the Republican support was still a minority of the Republicans, he was seeking it because he felt that validated it and it sent a message. If having Liz Cheney and, and Adam Kinzinger on the January 6th commission was not the desire of most Republicans. 
they were nonetheless Republicans, and it was making an effort in, in that direction. By the way, the president's taken a lot of heat sometimes for saying we need to reach out to the other side or that these people are good people. And sometimes it sounds even a little bit out of touch. But is it in our interest? It is. And would we be better off if we aspired to that ideal of having philosophical differences with the other party, but having a shared interest in a better country and certain common principles? We'd be better off. You mentioned that you interviewed 100 people for this book. And I was wondering, how did you go about selecting these people? How many presented themselves to you? How many did you reach out to? Was there anyone who you couldn't get in touch with or who, who refused to speak to you? you? You don't have to name names. Did people speak freely or did you have to conceal their identities as you relay their stories in the book? I think I reached out to almost every. There were some people who I had encountered. You know, Ed and I do this podcast. When we, we, well, I, this little company, which I like to refer to as the world's smallest media company, where we do six or seven podcasts a week. And so some of them had come on the podcast. And in fact, talking to them on the podcast was one of the reasons that I thought about doing the book, because I thought their, their stories were interesting, particularly, by the way, and I'm, I apologize for this, but the stories that they tell after we turn off the microphones, you know, and we're Zooming and we're starting to tell these, these, these stories. There were some people, mostly sort of high-level administration official cabinet level, and, and I spoke to a number, not just the ones that were quoted, who didn't want to speak. And, and I'll tell you, I think the main reason they didn't want to speak was that they feared retribution of some sort, political retribution or black mark, and you know, or people coming after them. Most people were very forthcoming. Some people asked that some parts of it be off the record, and so some parts of it are off the record. But most of them also had a lot they wanted to get off their chest. Given the uh, makeup of this uh, coming Congress in, in January, what are the chances of moderates actually working with Democrats, given the House? There are moderates in the House, uh, Republicans, of getting anything done. <laughs> I think the chances exist on some issues. So, for example, U Ukraine. You know, there's a lot of Republicans who are like, we shouldn't give any more money to Ukraine. But there's enough who think that we should, that that'll happen. There may be some crazy ideas about shutting down the government or blowing up the debt ceiling and stuff like that. And I think some moderates may keep us from doing absolutely crazy stuff. But, you know, you've lived through this time as I have, and we're regularly disappointed by the outcomes. So I don't know. Curious to know your opinion of the trajectory of Lynn Cheney. Where do you see Liz Cheney? I'm sorry, Liz Cheney, not Lynn. I mean, because Lynn would be easy. Lynn is her mother. I know. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, Lynn. Liz. Where do you see the trajectory? I don't know. I I think she will probably end up being a gadfly in the Republican Party. I don't think she's going to win broad Republican support. She might run for president as a way of pairing off some support for some of the more extreme people in the party, and that would be a big service. And come time for the next Democratic administration, when they're looking to make some bipartisan appointments, <laughs> she 
might get one. We hope you enjoyed this mini-series. If you'd like a signed copy of the book, all you have to do is go to thedsrnetwork.com and click on Become a Member. For just $50, you get membership to the DSR Network and all the benefits that entails, as well as a signed copy of American Resistance, How the Deep State Saved the Nation.